okay? <laughs> We're going to start up. I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I, I just want to uh, remind you uh, about a, uh, a, a, a teaching. It's a, it's a medrash. I heard it uh, in the name of... Um, I heard it from Rabbi uh, Kessin, um, who, who speaks a lot about just this, this whole idea of um, redemption and, and especially as it connects to Lashon Hara. Uh, our, our speech and um, and really rectifying our, our the, the the way we talk and he's he brings a medrash that says that a year before we left Egypt we stopped speaking lashon hara uh, among among the Jewish people and that's um, that led to the redemption and I, I was thinking about this uh, and uh, on, a, on a number of different levels, but just I want to zero in on, on one idea, which is that a, when, when, when we left Egypt, and this, these are, this is where we are right now in the, in, in the, in the Torah, leaving Egypt and, and about to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And um, these two ideas are, are fundamentally linked. In other words, God took us out of Egypt in order to give us the Torah at Mount Sinai. Um, it's not just another event that happened. It's not that, oh, um, you know, we were, we got out of Egypt and then we went on a trip. And you know what happened on the trip? The most amazing thing, we got the Torah. That, that's not it. We were taken out of Egypt in order to get the Torah. In other words, freedom without direction is not freedom. Freedom without direction is another form of slavery. And there are two stages of freedom one is getting out of Egypt, and the other is really getting the Egypt out of you, right? Just because you get out of a, a condition of servitude doesn't mean that you are free. You just don't have the um, external aspects of that servitude. To be free, you have to have something inside of you which has become awakened, and you have to recognize what the truth is. When you have the truth, then you're free. But just not to be have someone whipping you, and now he's not whipping you anymore, doesn't mean that you're free. Right? You're just in a state of being non-whipped. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's very different from being free. And it might sound like a semantical distinction, but it's a huge conceptual distinction. So we stop speaking Lashon Hara. You see, when you... Stop speaking Russian hard when you stop speaking ill about each other. That in itself is, is indicative of a higher level of consciousness. Because a lot of the reasons why we speak ill against each other is to assert our superiority over someone else. Um, that's, so there are different aspects of, of uh, bad speech. One, one is to actually... Uh, put someone down to their face, so that's, I'm better than you. Um, another is uh, to do it behind someone's back. You have to let everybody else know that you're better than the other person. <laughs> you know, something that's very interesting about the fixing of Lashon Hara, of bad speech, is um, that uh, when someone became purified from it, the, the, the Torah process of becoming purified is that a person had to be alone outside the camp. And that was one of the stages of the sort of the recovery process. One of the ten steps, if you will. I, I don't know if there were ten steps, but to put it in the modern lingo. 
Um, and uh, what, what, what that was meant to do was, I, and I heard my Rebbe, Rebbe Shlomo Karlach, said it this way, and this is such a profound thought put so simply. He said, do you know what's really going on when someone speaks Lashon Hara? With the, with the messages, right? The message is, is that I want to take that person's friends away from them. And that's, if you think about that, that's actually, that's devastating. I want to take that person's friends away from them. I want other people to stop being friends with that person. That is the underlying, either conscious or unconscious message in every bit of Lashon Hara. And now, so why is the fixing to be alone on the outside of the camp? Because God says, this is what it feels like to have no friends. Do you like this? Is, how does this feel? You want to you take other people's friends away from them? How about, how does it feel? So, so to stop speaking Lashon Hara means, you see, you see, one of the reasons why we want to assert our superiority over other people is because we either are jealous of other people, envious of other people, or we're insecure about ourselves. These are two different sides of the same coin. So I have to, why do I have to show that I'm better than you? Because I don't think that inside I'm much of anything. You know, I, I once worked for a guy, a very talented guy, but kind of nuts. Um, and uh, he told me that he had been to a psychologist. He told a group of people that he had been to a psychologist. And the psychologist said um, to him, he was diagnosing him, and he said, um, I know your uh, diagnosis, but I'm just a little bit... Uh, confused about one aspect of it. You either have a superior, a superiority complex masking an inferiority complex, or you have an inferiority complex, uh, or whatever the opposite of what I just said. In other words, there's this, uh, I'm confused myself, but there's, a, there's an interplay between inferiority expressing it as superiority, or having a superiority complex, which somehow manifests itself, you know, as an inferiority complex. There's, there's, there, the two of them are, 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 are interconnected. So, people speak against other people because they, they want to assert their superiority because really they feel inferior, right? Or they feel insecure. Or they're jealous. They really feel like the other person really is better than them. So they want to, you know, it's almost a superiority thing matching another superiority thing. They want to, they want to do battle with the other person and they want to take them down. So, so, the, what, so what's the solution to this? The solution is, you know what? Work your own program, as they say. Mind your own business. Because, because one of the real things is, is that we sense that there's a competition going on. And the truth is, there really is a competition going on. But it's between you and yourself. It's between you and your own potential. And people misdirect it. Because it's very easy to misdirect. Because you know something? It's so much easier to compete against you than it is to compete against myself. To compete against my own potential. 
Because then I've got to be straight, and I've got to work hard, and there's no excuses, and everything like that. Right? If it's me against the other guy, well, you know, we can play all sorts of games. Right? So, so, so the idea that the Jewish people, before they're leaving Egypt, aren't speaking Russian Hara. It's not just like, okay, they decided not to eat pork. Like they, in other words, it's, it's not just that they were doing a mitzvah. They were also doing a mitzvah. But this mitzvah is in the fact that they were able to perform this mitzvah is indicative of a spiritual elevation that they were going through, which really allowed them to be free. See, I'll tell you something very deep. This is from the Talmud. We know, and this has been documented, we know, and this is the common phenomenon that I'm about to tell you, after 120, when a person is buried, their bones go to dust. This is most cases. There are rare cases, or there are cases, I don't know how common it is, but it's been found, where people have been dug up and their bones don't decay. Among tzaddikim, among extremely righteous people. And they even find that their skin is intact. That, and this is actually an incredible thing. But it's true, and it's, 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 it's been documented. So, it says in the Talmud that um, bones, uh, rather, jealousy rots the bones. If you want to know what, how to, what the secret to not rotting in the grave is, it's to get rid of jealousy. To get rid of jealousy during your lifetime. You see, you have to understand something. On a very, very deep level, what makes us jealous, and I learned this from uh, Rev Shlomo. Again, he explains something very, very mysterious and deep, so simply. He says, you know what jealousy is? Thinking that someone else has your portion. You see? You know what it is? Jealousy is not that that person has something that I like. Right? That person has something that I like. Ooh, I wish that was mine. That's how we experience it. That's how we experience jealousy. That guy has something so nice, I wish it was mine. But it's deeper than that. On a deeper level, whether a person is in touch with it or not, the person is actually thinking, that person has my thing. Yeah, that thing which is so cool, which he has, that's really my thing. If you want to see how, uh, you know, how, how dark, how dark it gets. You know, we're not in touch with the darkness inside of us, usually. You know? So, so... So, so, so again, let's, let's review this idea because it's very, very important. Jealousy is not, isn't it nice what that person has? Again, Rav Shlomo says, jealousy is thinking someone else has your portion. That thing that you have is actually mine. You see? So when you're working your own program and you're minding your own business and you realize that there is a competition going on in the world, but it's between you and yourself, and you and your own potential, not between you and another person, then it doesn't matter what the other person has. You know? 
You should condition yourself. If someone tells you, oh, you know, this good thing that happened to someone else, the first thing that you should say is good. And the very first thing that you should say, good. Because it's true, it is good. And you know, you have to tell yourself that. You have to speak that word out. Good. You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo that if you can't take joy in someone else's joy, you don't know what joy is. You literally don't know what joy is if you can't celebrate someone else's joy. And something that I shared with you before, but I feel it so strongly, and, and, and I've said this, and people have gotten mad at me for saying this, because they say, you're being too strict. But I'm trying to point out something here. Okay? Whether you do what I'm about to tell you or not, just hear the idea. When you talk to someone who's had something good happen to them, most people say, I'm so happy for you. I really don't like that. And by the way, most people don't even know what they're saying, so don't get mad at people for saying it, okay? What I think is so much better to say, someone tells you something nice that happened, why don't you just say, I'm so happy? I'm so happy for you. Do you know what I hear from that? I hear, I'm so happy for you. For me, I'm not happy. <laughs> you know, how about just, your joy makes me happy. Your good thing makes me happy. Right? Because then we're all together. Then we're all together. Because listen, let me tell you something. Your simcha, whatever it is, whatever good thing that happened, it didn't come out of my pocket. Believe me. The raise that you got at work, or the job that you got, whatever it is, it didn't come out of my pocket. I promise you that. I promise you that. And in fact, the Gomorrah discusses such a thing. There was a family in Israel that knew the recipe for the spices, the Ketoras and the Besamikdash, the incense mixture. And they didn't share it with the other families. And they were severely criticized for this. Why didn't they share it with the other families? Because they thought if, every, if, if other people know, we're going to be replaced and we're going to lose our job. But the thing is, is that who's your job coming from? Your job is coming from God. So if your job is coming from God, you can't be replaced. And if you are replaced, then it's not coming from the other person who replaced you. It's coming from God. So God just wants something else for you right now. You see, <clears throat> one of the things, and for me anyway, this is a very deep idea, but I really believe that this is what's going on in terms of our lives, both on an individual level and on a national level. And again, it's such a simple bit of imagery, but for me it's very resonant. If you pick up a kaleidoscope, right? Everyone, I think, knows what a kaleidoscope. It looks like a telescope. You look through it, and then you turn the far end. And each time you turn it, all the crystals that are there rearrange themselves into a new design. So it's stationary. It's the same thing, but it changes, and then it changes, and then it changes, and then it changes, okay? So I think this is our lives. I'm standing there stationary, right? And then God changes it. And he says, how are you going to be in this situation? And then God changes it again and says, how are you going to be in this situation? And then God changes it again and says, how are you going to be in this situation? And this is true in all of our individual personal lives. We all deal with ups and downs in terms of money, in terms of health, 
in terms of all sorts of things, right? But each thing is a different turn of the kaleidoscope. God says, how are you going to be in this situation? Right? And as a nation, also, we have the same thing. God says, okay, so now you're walking into gas chambers, right? Are you going to say, animamin, I believe in perfect faith in the coming of Mashiach, right, in the redemption of the world, even as a person's walking to their death. Now it's sort of like the kaleidoscope turns. Now, what? We're running all the top corporations in the world, right? And, you know, we're living in large houses, right? How are you going to do in that situation? You're going to say, oh, you know what? I'm too rich for this, this uh, belief, this religion stuff, right? Is it just for bad times or is it for good times, Right? Or is it just for good times and not for bad times? Right? Like, I'm too busy trying to save my own life to think of God. You know, different personality types react in different ways. I heard something and I don't have any study to point to. Just a very reliable rabbi told me this. So I'm taking it at face value. He said as many people became religious after the Holocaust as lost their religion after the Holocaust. And just because you don't hear that idea too often, I'm sharing it with you. It's an interesting thing. People react different ways under different circumstances. Right? So in other words, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, this idea that the Jewish people stopped speaking Lashon Hara before we left Egypt is not a small thing. This is not a small thing. This is indicative that spiritually we weren't looking to the other person, right? We were just working on ourselves, basically. Now again, you don't want to take that idea too far, because a person can be very spiritual and oddly very selfish. Why? Because you know what I'm doing? I'm just concerned with my own soul right now. So again, you know, we have, we have something that the, um, that especially the, the, in the Hasidic world is, is derided, it's called atzadik impels, right? This is this this means that's Yiddish. That's a, that's by the way about ninety eight percent of all the Yiddish I know. Um, that's uh, that, that's called atzadik, which is like a holy person, a righteous person in a fur coat. So what's what's wrong with that? Uh, a, a holy person can have a nice have nice things. No, that's not the point. Of course they can have nice things. The point is like this. Imagine the room is cold. You're in a very cold room. There's two ways, two things that you can do. One, you can light a fire that warms up everybody, or you can put on a fur coat. And it's like it's the other people's problem. Right? You want to you, you get warm? Yeah, it's, it's your problem. So a tzaddik in a fur coat is someone who has the ability to warm everybody else, but instead is just concerned with himself and puts on a fur coat, and his, his, his needs are gone. So, so a person can't, in, 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 in not l- l- misdirecting this competitive life force, which is a healthy thing, because it drives you to succeed and it drives you to accomplish, but that's with your own potential, right? But you don't want to be so inward-looking that you're forgetting about everybody else, right? So, like, all, every spiritual idea, everything that you learn can be misdirected, I promise you. Right? Right? 
Everything. Because God preserves free choice at every single spiritual level and every single opportunity. Right? So you always have to know how to properly integrate and live a teaching. Because there will always be a way to mess it up. And I'll, I'll give you, like, one example pops into my head right now. Um, I, there, there are a few different people that um, have experienced moments like this. I know one of them is um, uh, Rabbi uh, Yonasan ben Zakkai, who was, you know, the, the leader of the Jewish people at the time of the destruction of the the second base of Migdash. And there's a very famous deathbed um, account given of him. So I don't know if this story is actually from there, or if it's another tzaddik on his deathbed. I'm not sure. But anyway, stories like this, the one, after 120, or at 120, one should strive to leave the world, word, world with the word Shema Yisrael Shem Elokeinu Shem Echad. That's how you want to leave the world, right? And the last thing that you say before you go to sleep, by the way, should be the Shema, okay? And then if you have to talk for whatever reason afterwards, just say the Shema again, that's all, you know? So, so each day is like a miniature of a lifetime. So that's the idea that you say it at the end of the day, certainly at the end of one's life. And it's a great merit if you can actually leave this world stretching out the Dalit of Shema, Echad. That's all, folks. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, see you in the next dimension. You know, that's, that, that's, like, that's the primo way to leave this world. Okay? But anyway, he's sort of like, who, who, whichever tzaddik this was, is on his deathbed. And remember, let me just remind you why I'm telling you this. Because anything can be misused. So you would think, if, if a person actually has the ability to, to, to leave this world on the word Shema, how are you going to mess that up? Like, what opportunity is there to mess that up? You know? You either say it or you don't say it. You either get through it or you don't get through it. Like, what's, like, what is the, what is the opportunity for it to go wrong? So, because he was so great, he had many people surrounding his deathbed. And they looked at him and they said, you know, like, like, why, uh, like, why, you seem uh, distressed, why? He says, because I'm about to say Shema, and I'm afraid that I'm going to say it in an arrogant way. Because, <laughs> look, I have all these people surrounding me, and I have this opportunity to actually leave this world saying Shema. I want to make sure that I say it in a real way, and I'm not performing it for you guys, right? So, so if you can even mess up your deathbed Shema... <laughs> not mess it up. But I'm just trying to tell you that, you see, this is one of the reasons my rabbi told me that you, you shouldn't just hear one lecture from one speaker, from one teacher. Because, but, you know, you always have to go to a first one, so you should not go because you're afraid that will be the only one you hear, so don't mess that teaching up either. Okay? It's just, it's just why, why, what is the point? that you shouldn't just hear one, one because, because people emphasize different things, and then they round out the thoughts, right? And until you hear the full picture, then a lot of times you can get the, the wrong idea because the, the emphasis is off. 
Like one of my favorite stories from the, the Gomorrah. You see, that's why I counsel, when you hear a spiritual idea, you have to do what I call a 360 around it. In other words, usually there will be a circumstance where you should do the exact opposite. That the teaching itself is telling you, and in certain circumstances, you'd actually do the opposite. Like, for instance, let me give you an example. You should always tell the truth. You should absolutely always tell the truth. However, let's say your 90-year-old grandmother makes you some chicken soup, and she can't see very well, and it tastes terrible. Right? And so your 90-year-old grandmother is bending over you, watching you put the soup in your mouth, and asks you, how's the soup? So you say, well, I'm a very righteous person. I know I should never lie. Grandmother, you've done better. <laughs> right? Look how righteous I am. I've told you the truth. That, no. <laughs> That's, so so is, if in something as fundamental, now, as telling the truth, which is a fundamental teaching, has a, an occasion where you're not supposed to, but you have to do a 360 around the idea, the full circle around the idea, to know when do you apply it, when do you not apply it. Right? In a lecture, they don't tell you that. In other words, they don't give you every circumstance and every application of every idea that they're sharing with you. That's why it's dangerous just to hear one speaker one time, because you're not going to get the full picture. I'll give you just, uh, just, a, or just a related thought, which is um, from the Gomorrah. I forgot the names, I apologize. But a, a very great teacher uh, said about his teacher, an even greater teacher, had I been... Uh, uh, had I come earlier to his lectures, I, I, would have, I would have learned twice as much. So his students were like, well, you know, you know, Rabbi, you know, this is their Rabbi who said that. Rabbi, you know, I'm so stunned that you would come late to the lectures of your, of, of your master. Right? And he says, oh, no, 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 no. I came on time. But everyone else came early. And so I didn't have a chance to see his face when he spoke. I had to sit behind him. And had I seen his face when he spoke, I would have learned twice as much. Which is an amazing idea that, and this is my explanation, but that somehow one's facial expressions are a running commentary to the words. Right? So, so again, there's a... There's a dimensionality to the teaching that sometimes gets lost unless you see it in its fullness. You know, so things have to be explained. Okay. So now, I want to get back to this idea of, of Lashon Hara and redemption. Again, to repeat the concept, the Medrash says that for a full year before the Jews left Egypt, they stopped speaking Lashon Hara against, against each other. So, what I'm trying to tell you is that it's not just that they did any mitzvah, right? That this mitzvah is indicative of a spiritual directiveness that carries within it redemption. Because you can't not speak, you can't stop speaking Lashon Hara unless you're also getting rid of misguided competition and misdirected jealousy. Alright, now I want to tell you a story. And this is a story that happened to me uh, a short while ago, and it made a big impact on me. You ready for this? Listen to this. My daughter 
um, wanted a pen pal. And she wanted a pen pal in another country. And I don't want to give too many specifics, but just a pen pal in another country. Okay. And she was, she asked me maybe half a dozen times, maybe even a dozen times, please, Daddy, can you try to look into it to, 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 to find a, a pen pal for me? And I thought to myself, okay, it's got to be the right person. I want it to be a, uh, a, also a girl and the same age and someone who's also, you know, going to a, a Jewish school. You know, I, I, I want them to be social contemporaries, you know? And I, I had an idea, finally, uh, like who I could ask. So I uh, emailed this person and the person, and I described my daughter, and the person says, yes. I know someone who, can, who will be a, a, a pen pal for your daughter. I thought, okay, great. So it actually worked out, and um, they connected, and my daughter wrote uh, a long letter, something like, um, like a, like a six-page letter, maybe. Maybe it was a seven-page letter, maybe it was an eight-page letter, I'm not sure. And in it, she wrote, uh, oh, here's some, some uh, movies that I've seen that I like, and maybe even she mentioned some books. And then the girl uh, wrote back, oh, um, my mother doesn't let me see those. Right? So, okay, so it's a, you know, in terms of that aspect of, you know, observance, religiousness, whatever it is. Not that my daughter was seeing anything I think is inappropriate, otherwise I, I wouldn't let her see it. I think we have high standards, but nonetheless, they they don't do that with their kids. Okay, that's fine. I've got no problem with that. You know, I, I, I got, I think, one, one, one detail wrong. Then, then, then my daughter wrote the long letter. That's what it was. The first letter I don't think was so long. It was shorter. Then she wrote a long letter. And she was so excited to, to get a, a letter back. And every day she would check the, uh, the mail, you know, because it would have the foreign stamp on it and it's exciting. You know, if you're a kid, you can imagine all the reasons. Why. Also, in an age of emails, to actually get a personal letter from someone, you think back when you were growing up, what a big deal it was to get a, a letter from someone, a personal letter. So anyway, now... A week passes, another week passes, another week passes. And I see my daughter's like really disappointed, you know. She's not, she's not getting a letter from her friend, you know. And then I start doing some thinking. And I say to myself, you know something? There was that detail that sticks in my mind that they said, oh, my parents don't let me see films like that. And I thought to myself, you know what? she's not going to write back. She's not writing back. And the reason why she's not writing back is because she thinks that my daughter is a bad influence on her daughter. And she doesn't want that relationship to develop. And that's what it is. And it made me really sad when I thought that. But, you know... They had made a special point when, in the very beginning, when the person suggested this other person, they said, oh, this girl writes back. So I thought to myself, you know what? She'll write back if she wants to write back. She has a reputation for being on top of things, and it's a really long time, and she hasn't written back. 
So, but here's the real point. I didn't say anything. I, I didn't say anything. I certainly didn't say anything to my daughter. And I certainly didn't say anything to my wife. I could have said something to my wife, like, you know something, I've got a theory here, and I think this is right, and whatever it is. You know, and, and, I, and we were both afraid that my daughter was going to be really, continue to be disappointed. But I didn't say anything. Then, one day in the kitchen, I hear my wife say, oh, you know what? She probably didn't get your letter. And that's why she hasn't written back. And it's funny, it's like, that didn't even occur to me. I didn't believe that was true, by the way. (laughs) But at least it was another very credible option. She just may not have gotten the letter. And I thought, oh, well, that's a whole different thing, right? You know? And so, so my wife said to my daughter, go and, and you should write her a, another letter. You know? And I don't know that she did write her another letter. But two or three weeks after that, she gets an eight-page letter from the girl saying, I've been so busy. I'm so sorry. And I remembered from your first letter when your birthday is. And here's a present. And I saw it with my own eyes. On the back page of the eight-page handwritten letter, she had gotten one of those lockets with two sides of of it, best friends. And she had taped to the end of the letter half of a locket, best friends. Now, what if I had said... What if I had said what I had said? You know what? They, you're not religious enough for them to be friends with you. What poison would I have put in the air? What poison? And it's coming from me. Oh, I'm so smart. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I mean, I... I, I mean... And I'm so happy I kept my mouth shut. I'm so happy I kept my mouth shut. So, so you don't know. We don't know. We don't know. You know, I thank God I've I've never uh, had to go to a a, a 12-step program, you know. But I know that there's a, a phrase that they use, which is, work your own program. You know? Which means, you know what? The other person's problems aren't, that, that shouldn't be your main focus. Again, don't misuse that, because you have to care and be a good friend to other people. But our primary focus has to be to get our own thing right, you know? And, and to the extent that other people are going through things... The best thing that you can do is to be a friend. Right? And a lot of times, being a friend actually involves not even saying anything. It's just listening. And then the other person knows that you're there for them. Just by listening. So really, even when there comes time to say something, you know, a lot of times, the the most you can say is not to say anything. (laughs) 
You know, just to be there. To be there with them. Because that says more. That says a lot. We think I'm not saying anything. You're saying a ton by your presence. You know? You know, believe it or not, there's an interesting halacha. A bit of Jewish law, which is um, not widely observed, but you should just know it, and we should only have simchas. But when someone visits someone who is in mourning, paying a shiva call, the truth is, is that you're not supposed to initiate, begin conversation with the person who's lost someone. Really, the main thing is just to sit there with them. You know? Then if the other person wants to talk, they'll talk to you. Now, a lot of people don't do that because we feel so socially awkward in those situations that nervous energy comes, and also we feel like, let me just talk. And also we feel that part of our job is, and this is incorrect, by the way, part of our job is to distract them from their mourning. Right? It's, it's not the whole... The brilliance of the whole mourning system in Torah is that, is that a person has to get this out of their system. They have to go through this, and once they've gone through it, then they can be past it. But unless they get it out of their system, you know, just a, a related thought, an interesting thought, in terms of substance abuse, right? And fill in the blank. There's all sorts of substance abuse that doesn't involve Drugs, food, can be a form of substance abuse. Okay? So, what is substance abuse? What, what is one of the effects of it? And um, I've worked with recovering uh, addicts, and, and, and I can tell you that one of the consequences of it is that it delays the maturation process. Meaning to say, let's give an example. A lot of people say will become drug addicts, I'm just picking a number, when you're 13, say. Okay? So you're 13 and you're going through all sorts of uh, challenges and disappointments and upheavals in your life and everything like this. And you are very uncomfortable dealing with the emotion of it. I don't, it's painful for me to think about. It's painful for me to experience. I don't want to go through it. So what do I do? I'll, I'll, I'll smoke something or, 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 or eat something or whatever it is. And that will give me sort of like a, a sensory stimulation that will help me not to have to cope with the, the sadness, or the depression, or whatever it is, okay? So, let's say a person goes, okay, so I'm going to commit to that long term. Usually we don't do this as a conscious decision, but I'm going to commit to it long term. So, for, let's say, let's say 10 years, the person becomes an addict, okay? So, at the, now, now they're 23, in my example. So now, they get help, say. And now they don't now they don't abuse. But do you know something? They're 23 years old. You want to hear something really shocking? Emotionally, they're still 13-year-olds. They're emotionally, they're still 13-year-olds because they never had a chance to go through the maturation process of, of dealing with all of these different issues. You hear? And it's... Um, it's, it's very hard. So, again, bringing it back to the idea of the mourner. In terms of the mourner, the mourner must get this out of their system. They must go through this thing. You know, I saw uh, uh, Rabbi Kagan was talking about um, the idea of uh, the Internet, one of the harmful aspects of the Internet. And what he was saying is, 
he was focusing on something that, it's funny, it said, it's something I've been thinking about a lot because I'm just so unfortunately aware of it uh, and the role it's playing in my own life, is not going on inappropriate sites. You know, that's, I know, a, a horrible challenge of internet addiction, especially pornography internet addiction, is, is, a, is a plague on the world right now. It's a plague on the world. And um, it's a whole other topic, but... Pornography is, is poison. Stay away from it. And believe me, I'm not telling you this from a prudish standpoint. I'm telling you this from a mental health and spiritual standpoint. It's poison. Stay away from it. Okay? But there's another, there's another aspect to it, which is, um, which is that it's uh, the, 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 the waste of time of surfing the net. And you, you'll find an article and you'll go, really, is that really what's going on in this um, tiny community in Israel? How interesting how they're dealing with the issues of um, bugs on their farms. But you know what? Is that, do you really need to know about that? I mean, you say, but it's Israel and it's, it's farming and this is, these are my people. Or, or, you know, this is what an interesting uh, recipe. I didn't know that you could do that with uh, strawberries. You know, I mean... Right, if you're going to make the recipe, fine, but I'm just, off the top of my head, just trying to give you examples of things that in the moment, oh, this is so interesting, I'll take another 5, 10, 15 minutes out of my life to, to read this. But what, he, what, what Rabbi Keegan re- referred to, and I, I sort of like this phrase, I hope I'm quoting it, quoting it properly, was the enormity of the banality. <laughs> the enormity of the banality. You know, really, because if you think about it, what did you learn? What did you come across? You know, really. I mean, did, was, was that really worth your entire day? And was it also really worth not getting what you wanted to do your entire day? And there's also this concept of momentum. That if you can work on something for several hours straight, you will accomplish a lot more then if you work on some five minutes, take a break, five minutes, read another article, five minutes, write an email, two minutes, write an email, two minutes, check your text, one minute, 30 seconds, check your text. I mean, so you say, well, but I sat behind the computer all day for eight hours. But it's, that's not a real, that's not the real thing. That's not the real thing. And I have to work on this with myself. Make a time. I'm not saying don't check. Check. You enjoy it. It's a good... It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Schedule the times. When you work, and I've done this, and it really helps me, turn off the internet. Turn it off. Okay? And then you can say, okay, then I'll, I'll check at lunchtime. You know, or whatever it is. Um, so... So, so freedom. We're getting out of Egypt. We're getting out of we're getting out of Egypt, and 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 just to make the point, because I really let's just go deeper now, okay? When what did we say? We said a year before we left Egypt, we stopped speaking Lashon Hara. Now, a new reality was about to enter into the world or be revealed into the world when we left Egypt. And that was the concept of the nation of Israel. 
Okay, you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our holy mothers, the tribes. You had this, but you didn't have a concept of the nation of Israel yet until we leave Egypt. Okay? Until we get the mitzvah of sanctifying time, you don't really get this you don't really get this entity. So a new entity, a new creation, if you will, is being revealed into the world. Now what I want to talk about is this correlation between speaking and rectifying speech and the creation of this new entity called Israel. Because we see this amazing parallel in terms of the creation of the world, which is that God spoke the world into existence. That through speech you have creation. Right? And when we speak with each other, when we speak, we create perception for each other, and perception creates reality. And the example that I've been using is that if a person in rags walks into the room and I tell you, I know that guy, he's a millionaire, you're going to treat him differently. Even if he's a poor guy. But because I've created a perception in your mind, that is going to become a reality in terms of the way you interact with him. So speech creates reality. God spoke the world into existence. When we rectified our speech, the Jewish people were created. We became a nation that left Egypt. We achieved freedom because we were able to focus on that which was most important. We were free from each other's expectations. You know, when I started keeping Shabbos, I grew up in New York City. I started keeping Shabbos in in, in Los Angeles. And I can tell you, one of the liberating things was, I didn't have to deal with any of my, the people I grew up with. You know, because there are certain social bonds which can be like traps around a person. Like, well, who are you to be religious? You know, they, they wouldn't really say it that way. What are you trying to prove? I once had someone who was, I won't even give you details, but someone who should have known better, looked at me, and with such con, con Condensation? In such a condescending way, said to me, and this was a person who was a quote-unquote rabbi, okay? Said, what, what, are you, what are you looking for? You know, as though I were like some, you know, pathetic invalid. You know, I, to this day I'm like stunned by that question. What am I looking for? How about truth? <laughs> How about the meaning of life? How about what I'm supposed to do? Now that I'm inhabiting a body, which is like three seconds long, right? It's a snap of the finger a lifetime. Right? What am I looking for? Ugh. You know, really? So, so now listen to this. Now this is, this is getting deep, and, and the truth is, is that I haven't even begun to explore the subject that I'm about to share with you. But I just want to alert you to one, the tip of the tip of the iceberg right now. Okay? And then this is a whole field that, God willing, one day we'll be able to learn together. You can study it on your own. I just want to make you aware of it. Okay? And that's the following. Which is, um, you know, we're, we're sort of poised between two epic events in, in world history right now, in terms of where we are in, in, in the reading of the Torah. The ten plagues have just ended, okay? 
And now we're about to receive the Ten Commandments. Okay? So, ten and ten. That's not a coincidence. Not only that, but there were ten utterances that God spoke the world into creation with. Okay? And all of these are linked. And they also link in with the ten sphero. Kabbalistically, that's sort of like the, um, the underlying you know, structure of the universe. All of these things are not coincidental, and they're all very closely connected with each other. And I'm not enough of a scholar to start going into all the different interconnections between them, but I do want to just alert you to one process that, that I am aware of, okay? God created the world with ten utterances. For many generations, it was crystal clear that there was a God and that there was a structure to the universe, if you will. We knew this. Then our consciousness devolved into idol worship. Um, what happened was we, we basically saw the physical world as, as emissaries of God and worthy of being honored. So that's not completely incorrect, but that was basically our road to ruin, because we then gave physical manifestations of godliness, disproportionate influence, and then we started worshipping them, and then it becomes idol worship. So, so what happened was, God speaks the world into creation with ten utterances, and his majesty and his presence was very well known. But then as people began to focus on physicality more and more, it became a blockage to seeing God. So now what does God do? Listen to this. Amazing. God then comes and brings the ten plagues, which go and correlate with the ten utterances of creation, and they... And, and the Ten Commandments, by the way. Well, let me just take it a step at a time. God brings the Ten Plagues, which goes to get rid of all of the blockages, to show that God controls every aspect of the physical universe, starting from the bottom, right? Because we start with the Nile River that's on the bottom, and then going all the way up, right? It goes up to hell, and right? locusts, and then ultimately the first form. Okay? Now, you would think to me, maybe you would say, well, the first, and then God reminds the world, now that all the gunk has been cleared away, now God reminds the world who God is. And that's the Ten Commandments. The restating of the premises of reality. You got it? Very interesting, no? This is, this is, this is the process. So, so, again, how all the correlations work is, 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 a, is a study in and of itself. But I can tell you one thing, that, that at, at a certain stage, it goes backwards. And what I mean by that is that the tenth plague, for instance correlates with the first commandment. The ninth plague with the second commandment. And, and that's one of the ways, I think the Zohar, if I'm not mistaken, brings it out. 
And I'll tell you, just in terms of methodology, I didn't understand it, and I was troubled by that. It felt like they're playing games. They're playing games. They're doing something weird. I don't, I don't understand this. Why is there this backward correlation? You know? And then I realized what was going on. That, um, that basically it's like this. Imagine you have a, a jewel. There's a jewel on the ground. And it's covered with a pile of laundry. Okay? So, in a, to get to the jewel, you have to remove all of, the, all of the laundry. Right? And then, at the end of the process of removing the gunk, the laundry, you get to the jewel, the primary source. So, that was the idea. That each of the plagues, the first plague... The top of the laundry. Second plague, a little more laundry. Third plague, a little more laundry. Finally, the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn, uncovers the first commandment, which is, I am God. Because we're told that the death of the firstborn was not brought by an angel, but was brought by God himself. And that we saw that when that happened, they were like, there was no doubt in their mind that God is controlling every aspect, of, every aspect of everything. So in other words, that's how you see that the tenth correlates with the first. Because you had to go through a reverse process of getting rid of all the muck before you could expose the primary element. I hope that that's clear. So, so again... And this is very important if anyone wants to make any real progress in terms of enlightenment. When you learn Torah, if you hear an idea like when I heard that idea and I was uncomfortable with, why is it 10 to 1 and eh, right? Don't go, and I see this in so many people, including myself, that the, you know, a, 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 you're a real rookie, a real novice in learning if you hear something that you don't like and you say, that's dumb. Believe me, believe me, if it's from a classic source, it's not done. You just don't understand it. Okay? Or it hasn't been explained properly to you. So if you hear something and it makes you uncomfortable, or you don't like it, don't say it's dumb. Please, for your own sake, don't do that. Train yourself to say, I don't understand. I don't understand. And you know what? God willing, you will understand it. And you know what? You may never understand it. That's another option. But, don't say it's dumb, please. Um, and just like what I now see is a, for me anyway, I don't know if that thought is interesting to you, the idea of the reverse process and the uncovering to get to the beginning, you see how deep that is. It's really deep. And, and, and it was only because I continued to explore it. Not because I, had I allowed myself to dismiss it, I never would have gotten to the goal, right? And again, that's just the beginning of the process. That's the tip of the tip of these correlations between the spherot and the utterances of creation and the plagues and the Ten Commandments. It's a giant subject. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, You know, when we left Egypt, they say that it's, and, and Pesach night, Seder night, right? When we have the Passover Seder, 
I heard Rabbi Deo say this. I loved it so much. He says it's like the door to the jail cell is opened and it's up to the person to walk through. The person has to walk in. Real freedom, real freedom doesn't come just because someone tells you, well, you're on your own now. Because a person can't be free unless they have direction. I heard that from Rav We got out of Egypt and we got the Torah. That's when we became free. Not when we got out of Egypt. And um, you know something? A person thinks, you know what the definition of freedom is? I call the shots. You know what that is? That's actually a recipe for neurosis. That's not, that's not freedom. That's, 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 that's neurosis American style. Right? Because if I'm the only one who's calling the shots, I'm a slave to my own whims, I'm a slave to my own level of understanding, to put it in a nice way, or ignorance, to put it in a realistic way. And... That's what it is. And you know what? I know enough to know that I don't want to be a slave to myself. Because that's the options. You're either a slave to someone else or you're a slave to yourself. You know, or you can transcend it and you can attach yourself to your true master, which is God. You know, such a fundamental medrash. God said to, to Adam in the Garden of Eden, name the animals. That's in the Torah itself. And then the medrash adds one more chapter to the story. God turns to Adam and says, and what's my name? And Adam says, Adoni, my master. We didn't create ourselves. God is our master. That's just the simple reality of it. And if we want to be free, we have to have an aspect of humility to understand that that actually is the truth. We do have a master over us. And to lock into that relationship, to tap into that relationship is to really to be free. Because you know something? If I have a bag of marbles, and there's one marble that's not in the bag, it's under the bed, that marble isn't free. That marble is lost. <laughs> you know? So, so, let's be free in the realist sense of it. Right? To, to really, to work our own program, to not be jealous of each other, mm-hmm. right? To not speak ill of each other, to stay really connected to the one true one, and to t- take our proper role in creation. And then we'll experience the deepest, most unbelievable things together. Have a great week. Oh, good.